0: From the Blink Slabs headquarters in Berlin, Germany, this is the Blinkist podcast. I'm the producer, Ben, and I'm happy to welcome you to this first of two podcasts on the theme of Eureka. Eureka, as I'm sure you know, is Greek for I have found it. It ties into ideas of great insight or epiphany. Think of like Archimedes stepping into a bath, realizing that the water is, is raising when he steps in and yelling, Eureka! Why? Because the volume of displaced water matches his volume. Things like that. So today on the podcast, we have a special guest, the author of the new book, Inventology, How We Dream Up Things That Change the World. Her name is Pagan Kennedy, and you might know her from the Who Made That column in the New York Times Sunday magazine, where she every week she would look at something like the stun gun or the champagne cork and examine how it came to be. In short, she's like an expert on invention. How cool is that? I think that's awesome. Anyway, if you're new to the Blinkist podcast, hello, welcome, uh, make yourself at home. The idea is we're going deeper into the nonfiction book world to get into the heads of the inspiring and genius people who are behind these books. So in this interview, you'll hear Pagan and I get into stuff like how the super soaker was invented, um, penicillin, super encounters, why people in the information science world are so interested in serendipity and finding new information. And we even talk about the very fancy sounding bioinformatics. So check it out. That's enough of an intro. Let's go right into the interview. Here's me. I was in Berlin with Pagan Kennedy, who was in Massachusetts. Enjoy it. See you in the outro.
1: Hello?
0: Hey, this is Ben from, from Berlin. Can you hear me all right?
1: Yes, I can. Good to talk
0: to you. Awesome. Where are you right now? Are you, You're you in the East Coast somewhere?
1: I'm on Somerville, Massachusetts, the Brooklyn of Boston.
0: <laughs> I was just there this summer, actually. All right, well, we don't have that much time, so let's just do it, I guess. I have your book. I have some thoughts. I have some questions. Let's see. I guess one of the most obvious kind of questions after reading um, Inventology this weekend was whether you think there's a recent invention out there right now that's going to change our lives in the not-so-distant future?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I think it's, you know, it is, of course, if I knew that, I would be a bazillionaire, I guess. (laughs) But, um, um, you know, one thing that you probably observed from reading the book is how many of the things that turned out to be really significant didn't seem like much to anybody but the inventor at the time. And um, I just heard a great quote, um, and I will probably mangle it, but somebody was saying the great new inventions are the ones that you have to convince people (laughs) to adopt because they are so new. Um, And you see that like with the Xerox machine where, um, you know, Chester Carlson was more or less, conceiving of this whole new way that the office would be organized. But one thing I'm thinking about a lot right now, particularly because I'm writing a piece about the history of the pregnancy test, the home pregnancy test, which is this technology I'm just like completely obsessed with, Mm -hmm. um, is the way that our lives are all going to be changed by diagnostic tests. What do you mean? So there's just a lot. There's a huge amount happening in the realm of diagnostics. um, And we haven't really caught up to it. I actually was just interviewing Eric Topal, who is this amazing cardiologist who's um, an advocate for patient empowerment. And he uh, was talking about how he encourages his patients to just download these echocardiograms on their iPhones and basically test themselves to see whether they're having a heart attack, you know, using their iPhone. Wow. And obviously you would want to double check and everything, but for people who, you know, need really advanced warning, need to monitor themselves, people who maybe, have, you know, are at great risk, this gives them much more ability to kind of see what's going on with their bodies. And this is, I think it's the frontier of healthcare where, um, you know, we can sort of have these new windows into our bodies and know what they're doing. Um, I'm like a total geek of, you know, testing my body in any way I can. I've done my microbiome. I've had my genome, some of my genome done and stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff now where they can't know what's going on because there's just not enough information yet. Everybody now is sort of there's a gold rush on to look at our blood and see, you know, you can see all kinds of biomarkers that are up or down, like different proteins that are elevated. If you can begin to map those onto you know, somebody suddenly having going into diabetes, or suddenly, you know, having something terrible happen to them, or having cancer or something, that could be amazing. And there's a lot of people now kind of using big data to try to do that, and, um, and a lot of excitement about that. And you know, we just have like our our phones are these incredible tools. Um, And I I actually just started geeking out. I just ordered a a glucose test. I don't have (laughs) diabetes or anything, but, you know, I'm really curious to see um, what my glucose is doing. Um, A friend of mine has a kid who's diabetic, and she's basically hot-wired her phone so she can see his glucose levels at all times. Wow. So there's also these communities of patients. You know, one thing I really tried to document in the book is how, when there's a need that's really important to people, you know, often it's not worthwhile or it's too difficult or there's some reason why it's just not going to really get solved by capitalism. Um, And like one of those problems right now is really good glucose monitoring. There's a lot of nerdy, boring reasons why it's really hard to do that well Mm -hmm. and make a profit. So there's all these people who are kind of just hacking their own solutions and sharing them and stuff like that. And I think that's really exciting. And, you know, especially in the realm of medicine, seeing these sort of patient led, um, uh, attempts to solve these big problems that maybe it's just not profitable for corporations to solve. And, you know, you definitely have skin in the game if you're, if you're a patient, you know, it's, you're you're really looking to find the best solution, not just to find a solution that will you know work in the market. So, right. so all kinds of interesting stuffs happening there.
0: Well, I thought I I could have sworn you were going to say something about Pokemon Go, but we're not. Oh, <laughs> but we're not. We don't have it over here in Europe yet. It's not out. So I I'm it's like
1: sort of take. I mean, I'm old, so I'm not not up on these internet games anyway. But yeah, we're it's sort of like took us by storm here it's just like one minute you had never heard of it and the next it's amazing how fast these things can happen now you know and then the next it's like
0: everywhere yeah um well before we get too far too deep into it we should (laughs) we should back up a sec and like i've been reading the uh the who made that your column in the new york times magazine for i don't know a very long time. And how long you've oh, how, wow, how long have you been doing it? Yeah, for? I did
1: it. I did it for almost 2 years.
0: Okay. And and I mean that's how I knew your name. That's my familiarity outside of the book and when I saw the book I was like, okay, that's also great, but I'm curious about where the book came from. I mean, clearly this is something you've been working on forever, but um what's the story there?
1: Yeah, you know, in my life as a writer, one thing I'm learning is um, like sometimes I have ideas and they just, again, it's sort of like the inventors. The ideas just seem too weird when I first have them and it's really hard to convince people. And I actually began writing about humanitarian inventing, you know, and Amy Smith, the inventor in the book, and all those people at MIT more than 10 years ago. And I really wanted to do a book on humanitarian invention and, you know, at sort of all this stuff that we now talk about, um, but it it was very kind of under the radar at the time. And I couldn't sell that book, you know, it was just too weird. And then, um, so I sort of like tabled that for a long time. And then I was, you know, doing a lot of different stories. And then the Times had this column. Um, I was writing for them doing, you know, just doing different random stories, and they um, they needed somebody to take over the Who Made That column. So they actually auditioned a whole bunch of writers, and I got the job. Um, so it was sort of like I stepped into this pre-existing column, but it was a great, you know, it was like I didn't really even realize until about six or eight months in what I what a lucky spot I was in. you
2: know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But I think it was when I was interviewing um, Marty Cooper, the guy who invented the cell phone, I was like kind of thinking, I mean, my first thought was like, I'm going to keep this guy on the phone for long <laughs> as I can. Because I only have 400 words. So I can't, you know, really put much in the column, but I want to find out like what his secret sauce is, you know, just for my own curiosity. Like, a lot of these people like nobody really has taken the time to talk to them deeply about what they do and how they do it. And it's really, and they're all really tend to be really thoughtful about the creative process and what works and stuff. So I had this amazing conversation with him and I was also, when I talked to him beginning to see these patterns, like see how what he said connected to what other people had said and, Um, You know, it's not like not one, it's not all the same pattern for everybody, obviously, which is why I kind of created different sections in the book. But definitely I was beginning to hear the same tricks and themes and techniques emerge from different people. And that made me think, you know, I haven't really seen this documented anywhere. And that's when I began thinking about a book because I couldn't cover the kind of Um, 30,000 foot view in the column, you know, just doing one story by one story. So I really wanted to kind of connect the dots and that, and also it was my own personal curiosity of like, how do these, you know, what what are these people doing to see something that nobody else is seeing?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's Uh, kind of like you, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't seen a book that covers as much different as many different perspectives in invention without going fully into innovation um as right. your as your book does i really like that about it. i really like this tension between um super encounters and bioinformatics bioinform- in what is it the second oh, thank the you. second chapter and i want i really want to break that down for the for the listeners or people yeah. who who don't really know it because Um, it took me a couple, like it took me a day for it to kind of settle into my brain as like a paradox, as like a challenge. And I don't know if that's how you see it also, or if it was just how I read it. But I mean, maybe we can just start and talk about what a super encounter is, and this kind of idea of serendipity or um, open-ended research, those kind of things first.
1: Sure. Well, I can start with how I kind of got onto this pattern. So as I was saying before, there's you know, I noticed that there were these specific patterns and different inventions, there's different kinds of inventions, like inventing a new baseball is really inventing different from inventing a new artificial sweetener, you know? Mm -hmm. Like some inventions involve a lot of knowing about how people will use something, like almost a lot of cultural knowledge. And then other inventions really, Require you to know a lot about how, say, chemicals work. Well, so my first clue that there was a pattern was when I talked to Lonnie Johnson, who was the inventor of the Super Soaker. Mm -hmm. And he was, uh, he started out as a NASA engineer, and um, he was home on the weekend and he was trying to make this nozzle or he had made a nozzle for a heat pump that was very, very powerful. But when he tested it out, he noticed something um, really weird about the way the water, just because of the design of the noddle, nozzle, the water came out. He was using it in his bathroom. It came out so powerfully that the curtains rippled and it sort of splatted against the wall. And there was something so like cartoony and cool just about the movement of the water. mm mm-hmm that he kind of fell in love with it and um, became fascinated. And I began to hear this with some of the other inventors. For those kind of inventors who had an accident or a chance observation, there was usually a moment where they noticed something completely unexpected about the way the world works. Um, And so when I, after I talked to Johnson, you know, I, I was really on the lookout for more of this and um, and began to hear it, you know, and so like the classic kind of serendipitous invention would be Alexander Fleming's discovery of penicillin, where he was just had left out these dishes, lab dishes, and then notices this weird pattern that really surprised him. So often it begins somebody sees something that they didn't expect to see at all and they become, so they're not trying to invent anything right. when they begin. They're just observing something in a really creative, passionate way where they see, like if you see something that's totally weird and you don't understand it and you get excited about it and you're trying to figure it out. And then at a certain point, <laughs> they begin to think this could be really useful for something. And often they don't know what it's even useful for, Mm -hmm. but they're just really excited um, to try to use it in some way. Um, And so that pattern of, you might call it the happy accident or serendipity or whatever, you know, we tend to think of it as a very unusual thing. But in fact, if you go through, I I went through this, survey of thousands of inventors where they asked them how they first got the idea for the thing that they patented. And about half of those people began weren't trying to invent anything, really. What they began with was an, an unexpected phenomenon. So they they might have been trying to do one thing and this other result popped up that they totally didn't expect. Or they were just doing their regular day job and they saw something really weird, um, you know, happen and they got excited about it. So that suggests that, you know, the serendipity or accidental invention is actually a huge hugely important phenomenon that we really should look at more so then yeah
0: right so well no i mean i i I don't have anything hugely to break it up i feel like you could just keep going yeah but but i'm i guess the one thing that maybe to expound upon is like how i mean in the book what i really liked was this weird feeling right this uh i think martian jet lag comes up in that point um this feeling that this feels cool. This is weird. This is different. But I think that maybe in in the super encounter leading into bio um, informatics, what's interesting is the um, the fact that you're not looking for anything, but have to be sort of already pre wired to find these things.
1: Exactly. So yeah, I mean. The thing is, when I notice, you know, anecdotally, I talked to a lot of people who, um, and also read a lot of stories about people who were, say, trying to discover an ulcer drug and then they get some of the chemical in their fingers and they taste their fingers and it's sweet and it turns out they found an artificial sweetener nice. <laughs> that you, and you couldn't have predicted the artificial sweetener because all the components of it didn't taste sweet at all, you know, so you really could only find it kind of by accident. Um, and so I was looking at that, but then the really hard nut to crack is like, okay, so we've got a lot of stories of these people and often in a, you know, one thing that's really clear is their passion. Like they get very, very excited, but what are they really doing, you know? And that is really hard because if you go looking for studies of serendipity, you f- you don't find a lot that's very helpful. Um, Hmm. You know, it's such a squishy term. It's really hard to study. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the research, a lot of the times when people say serendipity, they think of bumping into other people. They think of a social encounter. But every single one of these examples I had found did not involve another person. So it's like, if I can do one thing, I would like to debunk the idea that serendipity is always bumping into a colleague and having a conversation over lunch. I'm not, you know, that can be great, that can be awesome, but it is not how any of these inventions happened. It was people, you know, often alone, noticing something weird, in a lab dish or in their pocket or, you know, something like that, observing the world directly. Um, And so, anyway, so I went looking for any kind of research that would shed light on this. And the best research I found was by this um, Croatian-American researcher named Sanda Ertelitz. It's funny that the people in the realm of library and information science are the most interested in serendipity of, of anybody because they're really interested in, like, how do you design information so that people will, it will be the most useful, and so people will have these moments where they just land in somewhere, you know, really useful without, how how can you design information so people find what they're not looking for, basically, but is the is question still a lot of it. of.
0: But it's still something but that it's they will enjoy. Yeah. yeah.
1: Exactly. And that, you know, is the big question in their field. So anyway, um, Sandra Erlitz, um just did this simple study where she, this is in the 90s, back in the days when people really used libraries, and she interviewed more than 100 people um, about their experience in libraries and how often they found things they weren't looking for that turned out to be really important and how they searched for information and so on. And she found that the stories, the the way people worked fell in three categories. So there were people who were um, just like, they went into the library, they knew what information they wanted and they found it and they did not get it distracted. They did not like end up, you know, in some other section of the library, looking at the history of Indian elephants, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. they just didn't do that. They like, were not people with ADD at all.
2: Right. But th-
1: then, then there were people sort of in the middle who would kind of go to the library. They might sort of occasionally find something that they hadn't expected, or they might kind of occasionally browse and come up with something really interesting. But for the most part, they their process was pretty straightforward. And then there were these really interesting people that she called the super encounterers. And these were people who would have a project but they would go to the library not knowing, being completely open to whatever they were gonna find and not having any pre having very few preconceived notions about what they needed to find. And they would basically like just wander around in the stack, mm-hmm. sort of feeling their way around to hopefully bump into the right information that would give them ideas or lead them in an you know, to something interesting. And so those people, part of being a super encounter is kind of believing you are one so that you believe you have this kind of faith that you will, you know, it's it's not comfortable to just be open to whatever comes your way and not know, you know, if anything will. And so um, these people had a kind of unusual comfort with ambiguity and uncertainty and they were willing and they were very creative observers. You know, they would see something and get very excited about it. And so and often the super encounters didn't just find stuff for themselves, they'd find, you know, something else and think, Oh, that would be perfect for my friend's project. Right. And so the other piece of it is like really enjoying foraging. Being the kind of person who could be happy just wandering around for hours, just kind of finding random things now, this can go too far, like anybody who's you know been on Twitter for hours and hours, nice. just snacking on the random information like knows how this can like serendipity can have a dark side for sure mm-hmm. But I think that, the, but I do think that Sandra Ertlitz kind of put her finger on, um, this, this attribute of many of the great, you know, inventors and scientists. And I would also add journalists, because many of the, the great journalists I know are the kind of people who can go into a story knowing that whatever they think now is going to be proved wrong. Right, um, and just kind of wander around talking to people or looking at things, kind of waiting for the dots to fall in a pa- into a pattern. Um, and that's, a, I think, a re- pretty unusual skill. Um,
0: so is this... Because, is Because is, yeah. is is, uh, we don't have that much time left, I want to also yeah. connect this to what I read as sort of like the anti-super-encounter which is like bio-information and, and this new yes. field of rational design or targeted searches or, you know, I read something the other day that uh, the idea of the algorithms on Netflix or Facebook or Twitter, they they know what you like and they give you what they know you're going to like. And that's cool because you'll have a good experience. But the problem is you'll never really find that you actually do like kung fu movies. You know what I mean? You'll never fully oh, yeah. You'll never be completely surprised by, I don't know, some brand that you forgot you followed that actually is making an alarm clock that you're interested in or something. And uh you know, I I, I really connected to, to the fact that we need to use data, as you say in the book. Like we this is an opportunity. We're not gonna just turn our backs on the ability to look through a million genetic tests. Um, and experiments in order to find the next miracle drug, but on the other hand, you know it's hard to be a super encounter and deal with targeted searches and rational design and bio information, right?
1: Well, so I would say that um, you know there's a lot of debate about whether the internet and these and big data are actually enhancing serendipity or or limiting it. And um, But I would say, for instance, the people who hope to use um, big data to do drug design are actually hoping to massively take advantage of um, these findings we might not see that would be under the radar, in other words, to get way more serendipity because the idea would be, for instance, I was talking before about you know the way that they're look people are looking at blood now and looking at all these proteins
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so if you can without having any preconceived notion, if you can just look and try to find connect the dots and see, oh well, this protein is elevated um, when right before people get this cancer, right mm-hmm. that would be an instance where. that these big data tools massively enhance our ability to see connections and and serendipitous connections because it might not be the kind of connection we would order you know that would seem rational at all we might not have an explanation for why that protein Mm -hmm. we you know is connected with that cancer we might not know at all all we know is Wow, You know, so we're looking at it agnostically with no idea of why, you know, which is what's really, really cool about, I think, about algorithms is they can reveal these patterns that we're totally not aware of and that are sort of invisible to us. But as you said, I mean, I think there are there's also ways that we can program in things that are limiting us that um we're not aware of in ways that are potentially really dangerous. I mean, actually there's, you know, now a lot of talk about how having racism, you know, basically programmed into algorithms. There's Mm -hmm. an algorithm that was supposed to find, um, separate, find human faces and with African American people, it would mistake them for gorillas. And that mistake was, probably an artifact of the people who were either programming who were you know the people who were programming the the algorithm or of who knows what right. but you know it was deta- it was picking up the racism and then baking it into the cake you know of this software and that's exactly what we don't you know and creating and and amplifying the wrong way, you know, the, the pattern that's wrong and, and even really dangerous. So, and in a way that's like really highly invisible to us, you know, that it's really hard to find those things that creep in. Um, And like you said, you can sort of exist in your own data bubble um, um, more and more. So, so I think there really is, um, you know, it's, it's something that we, I hope to kick off, there's been so little written or studied about serendipity and the way that we put these patterns together because it is so hard to study. And so I would really like to just kick off, throw more attention to this debate. I think it's really hard to have the answers. And I think the answer is probably um, a complicated one, that there are ways in which these big data or bioinformatics can reveal like really valuable things mm-hmm. to us about how to say disease works that we like could never see with the naked eye. Um, and any anytime a new tool comes along, you know, think about the telescope that then we have like waves of serendipity right. because people are suddenly able to observe new things easily and so it's like a part of the darkness is illuminated now but then any tool also shapes the way that we see and also you know warps our vision too and prevents us from seeing things so I think it's always um something just to be aware of um but it's so fascinating and I you know I'm kind of yeah I'm kind of hoping that more people will get into this area and help to, you know, and study it because I was really digging to find um, helpful research.
0: Well, you did, I mean, I think you did an excellent job. This, um, I mean, in terms of just collecting everything, I had never heard the whole story of Alstuler. And, uh, also building 20 and I'm not even going to go into it, even though you're not supposed to on a podcast, say stuff and not explain what you're talking about because (laughs) people can just go get the book or look it up because, um, it's really, it's really fun stuff and who knows, maybe somebody will be listening and, uh, have their own secret ideas on serendipity and get in touch.
1: That would be awesome. I'd love to hear them.
0: All right, cool. Well, this was really fun. I wish we had more time, but maybe, who knows, if you end up in Europe on the uh, German language promo tour of Inventology or something, we'll, <laughs> okay. we'll grab a coffee, a serendipitous coffee, even though I know that serendipity doesn't have to involve another person. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> Just stare deeply into your coffee exactly. and uh, you'll find the answer. <laughs> All right. Well, it was great to talk to you. Cool.
0: Totally. Have a great rest of the day over there. Okay. Thanks. See ya. Today's Blinkist podcast was produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, and Ben Jackson. Odie was looking for Pokemon and got himself locked in the basement. Poor guy. If you're looking for more Blinkist interviews, you can check out our page on iTunes or SoundCloud or your favorite podcatcher. We're pretty much everywhere now. And if you liked what you heard, we would really appreciate it if you leave us a rating or a like or a heart or whatever they have, wherever you are. And also, just pass it around. Tell people, tell people about it. We're trying to spread the word. Either way, email me what you think, what you think about the podcast, what you think about me, what you think about our guests, what you think about the magazine or about Blinkist or about anything you want. Podcast at Blinkist.com, podcast at Blinkist.com. We'll be around again next week with another really good mind on Eureka and invention, David Berkus, author of The Myths of Creativity. That's a hard thing to say. The Myths of Creativity. Uh, So I hope to see you guys then. In the meantime, be good and see you around. Bye.